Well, good evening, and our apologies that we're starting a little late tonight. I'm Nairi Woods, and I direct the Global Economic Governance Program at Oxford University. And I'd like first, of course, to thank the London School of Economics, Howard Davis, its director, and the fantastic events team in this place for hosting tonight's lecture. We're very honored to have the Secretary of State, Douglas Alexander, lay out for us tonight uh, a great vision of how to equip the World Bank to deal with current challenges. And I guess for many, the, the world, they, many see the World Bank as really a target of some pretty intense criticism. The bank's often accused of being undemocratic and of foisting bad economic policies on countries. And what's interesting is actually it gets hit from all sides on both of those. The US Congress think it's undemocratic because it's too responsive to foreign countries. The developing countries think it's undemocratic because they see it as run by the United States. Um, the United States Congress think that its economic policies are bad because they pander too much to government. Developing countries question the World Bank's economic policies as being too beholden to an American model. And we can add to these challenges, which we all know of, the fact that the World Bank is now operating in a world in which economic power is shifting dramatically. China's new engagement with developing countries means that in many parts of the world, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Europe are no longer at the center of the frame of some developing countries. China has emerged as a major partner to those countries. And sometimes the reactions of the United States, European Union are quite anxious, sometimes even hysterical, about that shift. So the World Bank is a very crucial organization at this juncture because it's an established multilateral organization that China and the other emerging economies and Europe and the United States have long been engaged with. It is in some ways a trusted structure by all those countries, even though each would like to change it in some way. And the bank itself has, of course, been changing. It's been globalizing. I see that visiting the bank. The man Ten years ago, all of the bank's senior management team were sort of Anglo-European from its American president down. Today, the managing director is a Nigerian. The chief economist is Chinese. The board secretary. Um, th there's been a, a change at the staffing level that's already rippling through the bank. And it's that bank that Britain's Minister for International Development is going to give us a vision of change for. He's a man who's worked on both sides of the Atlantic in, his, in the early part of his career, both in the US Senate, um, studying at the University of Pennsylvania. And I think that gives him a special take on how to forge a new both American-European relationship and a more global relationship among the shareholders in the bank. So I really look forward to what he's going to say to us tonight. And I hope that we will have time to take a few questions from you before we close. Douglas Alexander.
Thank you very much indeed, Nairi, and thank you for your forbearance in waiting for the arrival of the speaker this evening. I suppose as a former Secretary of State for Transport, I should begin by apologising. But the great virtue of having an elected mayor is I'll happily blame Boris Johnston for being a few minutes late. In all seriousness, Nairi, can I thank you for those kind words of introduction this evening. I have to say my excitement, indeed delight, at the prospect of speaking here at the London School of Economics was matched only by my trepidation at the thought of sharing a platform with somebody so expert in the World Bank and sharing a room with an audience, uh, no doubt with many people with great qualifications and interest in the issues that we're going to discuss this evening. It is, as I say, a genuine pleasure to be here back at LSE once again. I've had the opportunity to speak here on a number of occasions as the Secretary of State for International Development and indeed with a few other hats on as well. I've always found the welcome to be warm and the questions to be worryingly perceptive and I'm sure tonight will be no exception. I'd like to make a particular thanks to all of you for making it here this evening as well, uh, not least because we had to postpone the event uh, which we'd anticipated having last night because we were trying to update the House of Commons voting systems and bring it somewhere into the early 20th century, never mind the early 21st century. Uh, it gives me a sense of humility with which I address the need for further institutional reform in the institution of the World Bank, the topic of which is my chosen topic this evening. Now, it was 66 years ago this year that a conference of nations gathered at the Mount Washington Hotel in Bretton Woods in New Hampshire. They met as a world was emerging from a devastating crisis and into an uncertain future. The threat of the return to global economic depression loomed over that particular conference, yet rather than shrink from the challenge, rather than to retreat into self-interest, those gathered at that hotel instead charted a new course of international economic relations. By establishing both the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, John Maynard Keynes and his colleagues reshaped their century. In the six and a half decades that have followed, the World Bank has raised global ambitions in the fight against poverty and channeled collective efforts for the common good. Yet today, 66 years on, the world faces a new set of global challenges, greater arguably than any since that meeting in Bretton Woods. We have endured the most severe economic international crisis for generations. The early hopes expressed by many in the economic community that developing countries would be cushioned from its effects have sadly been dashed, with the World Bank's latest estimates suggesting that an additional 64 million people will be pushed into extreme poverty because of the latest crisis. Alongside this financial crisis, of course, looms the climate crisis, and again, the world's poorest people are most vulnerable to its effects. And for millions of the poorest people around the world, there is, of course, a third crisis at the start of this century, a crisis of conflict and of fragility. Amidst those global challenges and connected to them, we have the ongoing shame, the ongoing crisis of extreme global poverty. With just five years to go until the deadline to reach the Millennium Development Goals, it is clear that the world will not fulfill those promises without radical action. I believe it is our collective moral obligation to take such action. And to this moral imperative, we can add the understanding that in this era of interdependence, such action is needed to assure our common security 
our common prosperity, indeed our common future. In this new century, faced by these new challenges, the World Bank will remain a vital pillar of the multilateral system. As Nari said in the introduction, along with the IMF, the regional development banks, the United Nations, and indeed the European Union. Time and again, the world has called on the bank with its finance, its knowledge, its reach, its capability to offer effective advice, to provide necessary leadership. And time and again, the bank has answered that call, pioneering new approaches and helping to improve the lives of millions of people right around the world. So the United Kingdom has been and will remain a strong supporter of both the World Bank and the mission of poverty reduction that is and should remain central to its purpose. At the same time, we need now to revisit the global architecture that was established more than half a century ago. We are seeing this happen elsewhere, from the preeminence of the G20 to the IMF's response to the new imperatives of the global economy. And in this changing constellation of multilateral institutions, the World Bank should be the leader in the global fight against poverty, recognised and supported as the primary source of expertise, finance and institutional support for developing countries. I want to tell you this evening that the United Kingdom, as a shareholder in that institution, is fully committed to playing a constructive role in supporting the development mission of the bank in the years ahead. We will not turn our back on the bank. All of the bank's shareholders have a duty, both to our own citizens and to the people whom the bank serves, to work to ensure that the bank resources have the greatest possible impact. That duty is especially clear this year, as the World Bank is asking shareholders to both replenish the International Development Association, which provides investment for the world's poorest countries, and has also requested an increase in capital, something that has not been granted since back in 1988. It is hard, therefore, to overstate the significance of the International Development Association, known as IDA, to the global effort to tackle extreme poverty. It alone provides 13% of total global aid to the poorest countries on Earth. Since 2000, it has helped provide clean water to over 22 million people, built or rehabilitated roads benefiting over 75 million people, and helped to get some 91 million children around the globe into school. It is because of this impressive track record of effectiveness in reducing poverty that the UK committed back in Berlin in 2007 to support IDA with our largest ever contribution to that fund, £2.1 billion sterling, which in turn makes us the fund's largest contributor. So as we consider the new requests for IDA and for capital, we have a duty to consider also how we can ensure that the bank gets maximum benefit from the investment we provide. And that is why, as Britain's governor to the World Bank, I'm keen to play a part in renewing the institution to enable it to take on the toughest development challenges, help the poorest countries, and be the most responsive multilateral institution in the world. Let me set out, therefore, in some detail what I believe should be the three priorities for the bank in this new era. First, the bank must prioritise and excel in tackling the toughest development challenges. Second, the bank should do more to help the world's poorest. And third, the bank should be flexible and innovative enough to respond to an unpredictable world. First, 
The world needs the bank to take on the very toughest and newly emerging challenges that we're all confronting in the field of international development. While some people argue that fragile states, whether Yemen, Sudan, or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, are just frankly too risky to engage with, I believe that when half of all the children who die before the age of five are born in fragile states, the greatest risk comes from leaving those countries to simply fend for themselves. This is, of course, a challenge facing all institutions. That's why last July I announced that half of the UK's new bilateral aid will go to fragile and conflict-affected countries, and why I pledged that we will make security and justice priorities alongside basic services like education, health, and water and sanitation. Yet while the World Bank speaks of the importance of tackling poverty in fragile states, its practice lags too far behind its policies. Trust funds managed by the bank have been slow to disperse in the Sudan and in Iraq. The bank has been too slow to post senior staff to the Great Lakes region, or indeed to Yemen. Make no mistake, this is difficult work. The bank's efforts in fragile states are limited partly because staff know that in these countries the risks of failure are highest. And we, the shareholders, have not clearly articulated the level of risk, the balance between risk and return, that we, as shareholders, are prepared to accept. For surely we don't just want a Coast Guard which rescues mostly when the seas are calm and the winds are gentle. Secondly, the World Bank should, above all, be a guardian for the world's poorest people. The bank has historically led the way in supporting middle-income countries to put in place social protection systems, and I welcome the bank's commitment to an extra $4 billion in such support to help countries respond to the latest financial crisis. But the bank now needs to show that this same commitment is evident to social justice for the very poorest people in the very poorest countries. In the Department for International Development here in the United Kingdom, we have taken concrete steps to support new and scaled up social protection schemes, committing to reach 50 million people in over 20 countries. And I will be urging the bank, with its broader reach, to now step into the lead not only in middle-income countries, but also in the poorest countries as well. For as we have been reminded in recent months, while many countries face difficulties caused by turbulence in global financial markets, the poorest are less able to withstand those shocks. These are the countries that find it so much harder to find alternative sources of affordable finance, so will inevitably rely more on the World Bank, both in good times and in bad. These countries should have a priority call on the very best expertise within the bank. Thirdly, amidst the risk of such turbulence, not only from the recent global financial crisis, but from the food, fuel, Asian and Latin American shocks as well that preceded it, we need a bank that is flexible and adaptable enough to cope. As we look to these issues of architecture, we need to learn from the recent financial crisis. It was right that the bank had the capacity to support emerging countries when funding from the markets so rapidly dried up only a few months ago. And I welcome the bank's speed of response in trebling its lending to middle-income countries, committing to lend over 100 billion US dollars over three years which has and will provide much-needed help in protecting their budgets and protecting their citizens from the worst of the crises. But the architecture, frankly, lacked a way to respond to the scale of need for the poorer countries. That is why, in his report to the G20 at Pittsburgh, the British Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, called for a permanent capacity in the bank 
to respond to crises in low-income countries. There is a helpful precedent for this. It was my predecessor as International Development Secretary, Hilary Benn, who saw that the system of responding to humanitarian crises, the equivalent of a fire brigade asking for donations as they arrive at the scene, needed reform. Now we have a standing fund at the United Nations that can be called upon in the immediate aftermath of a humanitarian emergency, and indeed even this month was used by the United Nations agencies to fund their efforts in response to the tragic earthquake in Haiti. Why shouldn't we have an equivalent capacity to help countries deal with economic emergencies? I'm pleased to see that the bank is now piloting such a facility, but shareholders now need to set it up permanently, agreeing to review it if necessary. But responsiveness is not just needed in times of crisis. Still, it is suggested in the case of the very poorest countries that the bank can still be too slow to disperse, too bureaucratic and too inflexible. Indeed, the bank's own reform papers provided to shareholders just this week described the need for the bank to, and I quote directly from those papers, unclog its own processes. Of course, progress in this effort has been made, and that is, of course, welcome. Yet we must ensure that we match the scale of our ambitions for reform to the scale of the challenge that we face. To do so requires the efforts of both the bank's management and the bank's shareholders. For we cannot sensibly address the need to do more in fragile states, the right balance between resources and middle and low income countries, or indeed the ability of the bank to respond to crises without addressing weaknesses in the governance and accountability of this post-war institution. That is why I want to suggest to you this evening that we do have an opportunity at the forthcoming spring meetings of the bank to address the governance and accountability questions that continue to impact directly on the legitimacy and effectiveness of the institution. I believe that such questions should be addressed with an appropriate sense of urgency. That is why I pressed for wide-reaching reforms at the bank's annual meetings in Istanbul last October, and I welcome the work undertaken by the bank on this agenda since that meeting. Now, within just the last few days, the bank's management have set out an operational reform agenda with recommendations including simpler and faster investments, getting staff out into client countries, and more focus on performance and results. Reform is therefore a key test for management, but also a key test for shareholders. The reforms that we need to see involve both. The bank's shareholders need to take tough decisions and show political courage in order to make the changes that are required from top to bottom to ensure that the bank is not only fit for purpose, but fit to lead. Let me be clear. After attending both the Copenhagen climate talks in December and earlier world trade negotiations in Geneva the preceding year, I'm under no illusions as to the challenge of achieving progress through multilateral negotiations. Progress is sometimes indeed often measured in inches rather than in yards. But the reason that I'm setting out my suggestions tonight is because I believe that to have even a possibility of making more important and fundamental reforms will require shareholders like myself to engage early and with candour in that process. So in advance of the spring meetings in April, let me be clear to you this evening, as I will be clear to my colleagues on the World Bank's Development Committee, about what are the UK's priorities for reform. They are agreement on voting reform to give the poorest a greater voice, accelerating the promise of decentralising staff and decision-making 
to improve the organisation's delivery on the front line. And also, a new compact between shareholders and management, each held to account for the highest performance. Let me briefly take each of those in turn, starting with the issue of voting reform. Such reform is long overdue and critical to ensure that the bank is a true partnership reflecting the reality of its work and its mission today, not that of 66 years ago. And we have already made a start. The United Kingdom has helped to secure an extra seat on the board of executive directors for Sub-Saharan Africa. We've pushed for and secured agreement from all shareholders that the selection process for the president of the bank should be transparent and based on merit. Last October, shareholders promised to agree reform of the voting system at the forthcoming spring meetings. We agreed that the World Bank's development mandate, and not just economic weight, should determine the apportionment of shares in the bank. We agreed at least 3% of the vote be transferred immediately from the developed countries. But we haven't yet agreed the detail. We have the opportunity to design a new and relevant foundation for the bank's governance, and we should seize that opportunity. The aim must be to agree a dynamic formula that will be reviewed every five years as the world changes, not arguing again in five years' time whether it's right for developing countries to have more say. We should agree that economic strength should only partly decide, say, within the bank, and that more weight should be given to those countries making the largest financial contribution towards the bank's efforts to fight poverty in the poorest countries. We should... I also believe, agree that more weight will be given to the poorest countries themselves, for the World Bank should be a partnership and the poorest countries should have a real say in deciding its direction. Because it is those countries that arguably have the strongest interest of all in ensuring that the bank is effective, it is they, not the richer countries, who bear the greatest cost when things go wrong, they who work in partnership with the bank to make poverty reduction happen on a day and daily basis. Such reforms will help to ensure that the bank responds to the needs of the world's poorest countries. But voting reform, challenging though it is, will need to be obliged to follow along a further path of reform which covers a broader agenda of issues. That is why the second priority for the bank, I believe at the spring meetings, should be to give a clear indication that more of the bank's staff should be moved out of Washington and into poor countries. Even with its vast financial resources, the bank staff is still arguably its greatest asset. For too long, too many of the bank's employees have been based in Washington, however, rather than in developing countries. I su strongly support new proposals by the bank to decentralise staff and decision-making to make the bank more agile, more global, and yes, more responsive. Success in delivering this reform will remove the delays caused as governments wait for senior bank staff to visit their countries and to take important decisions. And it will improve impact, making sure that the bank staff are working with government as genuine partners accompanying their development efforts. The bank is now stepping up efforts to base more professional staff in Africa and make its lending more flexible. I support the bank in going further and faster in implementing these reforms because we know that this is what brings real benefits to people. As the bank itself attests, projects in fragile states are four times more likely to perform well if they are overseen by staff based in country. So shareholders should agree in spring to move more bank staff out of Washington as an urgent reform priority. And as shareholders, we need to be realistic about some of the costs associated with this reform, 
it may indeed increase direct costs, especially in the short term, but I would argue that the costs to the bank of not decentralising are far greater in relation to loss of influence, legitimacy and also impact. So I stand ready to consider the possible additional costs, but the costs of closeness and greater accountability to clients must be matched by a drive from shareholders for the very best performance right across the institution. That is why my third suggested priority for the spring meetings will be for shareholders to recast their relationship with the bank's management. Because behind the continuing challenges of delivery, we see at the bank today enduring weaknesses of corporate governance that have grown as successive bank leaderships, shareholders and management alike, have failed to grasp the opportunity, indeed the obligation to modernise. Indeed, the independent Zadio report, re-empowering the World Bank for the 21st century, personally commissioned by President Bob Zellig to address the need for corporate governance reforms and staffed by some of the sharpest people in development, delivers a sobering critique. The World Bank's governance, to quote directly, forged in the 1940s, has not kept up with historical change and today is not adequate to deal with global problems that require forward-looking, flexible, inclusive and legitimate institutions. As Zadio points out, the current accountability systems, and I quote directly again, at best have only a limited impact. We have a World Bank today where shareholders are not provided with a clear corporate strategy that sets out priorities for the bank and that guides the tough decisions and trade-offs that must be made. All shareholders, whether from rich, middle-income or poor countries, now need to take on this challenge. At the annual meetings, we said that reforms to corporate governance are needed. We must not now shy away from this challenge. I hope that we can together agree three important measures. First, we need a new way of working that sees shareholders take more direct responsibility for the stewardship of the bank, agreeing a strategy and taking tough collective decisions on where priorities lie. I believe that a ministerial board of governors meeting four times a year would strengthen the leadership of the institution. We need an urgent shift so that bank management, in common with the management of other organisations, expects to answer searching questions at the annual and spring meetings on their performance and on the delivery of the strategy that governors have been tasked to take forward. In turn, governors should expect to have tough issues put to them and equally have an obligation to work to resolve them. Second, we should remove the ambiguity about the role of the president. Is he or she there to lead the shareholders or to follow their lead? The time is right to think about an independent chair for the board, and at a minimum, shareholders must agree to hold annual performance reviews for the president and for senior management. Third, in return for clearer strategy and tighter measures of performance, we shareholders need to give management the freedom to deliver. That means, frankly, getting out of the operational detail of the day-to-day -day running of the bank. Now, I realise that for some shareholders, and indeed some within management, reform is a contentious subject. Some may fear that attempts to reform will somehow imperil the bank's status. Yet I think that those of us committed to the bank can afford to be more confident, emboldened rather than cowed, by the scale of the challenge that together we face. With just five years to go to reach the Millennium Development Goals, with more than a billion people going hungry every day, 
with 72 million children out of school, with half a million women dying each and every year in pregnancy and childbirth, we have a collective responsibility to take the necessary radical action. Such action cannot simply mean an increase in resources. Instead, it will require us to aspire to the ambition and the vision to not only see the world as it is, but imagine how it might be and to harness the commitment of all of us to work tirelessly towards that vision. In so doing, I believe that we can regain some of the spirit of common action for the common good that was evident and indeed was forged back in Bretton Woods. More than 60 years ago, the man often referred to as the architect of that historic agreement, John Maynard Keynes, set out in his general theory and insight that I want to share with you this evening. The difficulty lies, he said, not in the new ideas, but in escaping some of the old ones. He was writing in a different time, acting in the shadow cast by another great crisis. Yet that insight, I believe, rings as true at the start of this century as it did in the middle of the last. So we must be bold in our efforts to tackle the challenges of our era, of poverty, of conflict, of climate change, and of course the challenge of working together. For it is only through that bold collective action that I believe we can together overcome the challenges that we face. Thank you very much indeed. We have time for perhaps two very, very quick reflections from the audience. Is there anyone who's got something they're burning to say? And I, I will cut you off if it's more than half a sentence long. So I've got one there and one here. How much uh, cross-party consensus is there on the issues that you've raised and the, the policies that you put forward, obviously in view of the fact that you may only be in office for a few weeks longer? Excellent question. How much cross-party consensus is there for this reform agenda? And we have another question up here, if you can get a microphone. No, we don't have a microphone. Is there one question up there? Could you give the microphone to that person whose hand is up? Well, I just learned that we have a commonality at Penn where I'm a professor. I would like to know your opinion on whether the fact that this current global financial crisis was unusually homegrown in the U.S., unlike prior crises, has that crisis, has the fact that it was in the U.S., in your opinion, has it had an effect or will it have an effect on the U.S. attitude and other attitudes towards the World Bank and the changes that you propose? Good. Thank you. Did you get the microphone? No? No? Um, and just one, one other comment, if you can pass the microphone back to the lady behind. You talked about multilateralism. Why are you and the World Bank looking, locking developing countries into the Bill Gates tax system? And by that I mean Microsoft, when there are free and open software solutions out there that are not based on these sort of tied relations. Good. Thank you for those comments. Minister. Okay. Um, I'll start at the first and come to the last. Um, uh, uh, being in office for a few more weeks, that's not the plan, I can assure you. Um, the serious point in this, um, I genuinely don't know whether my uh, shadow on the Conservative front bench, Andrew Mitchell, has ever met Bob Zillick. I know for a fact that William Hague met him recently. And if you want evidence as to the difference of approach between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, I can't think of any more eloquent or illustrative example 
Uh, it's a matter of record that the last Conservative Prime Minister and the last Conservative Foreign Secretary, Douglas Hurd and John Major, wrote an article in the summer saying that it was time that DFID was brought to heel and reincorporated back into the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. I would argue one of the reasons that we have established global leadership on development issues over the last 12 or 13 years was the conscious and purposeful decision to establish a separate cabinet-ranked department that was responsible for international development policy. One of the consequences of that early and significant change was that the British governor of the World Bank is the International Development Secretary and not the Foreign Secretary. Uh, indeed, during my time as Development Secretary, we made a further decision to have a separate executive director uh, working directly to the British Governor of the World Bank, the Secretary of State for International Development, rather than what we had at a previous arrangement whereby we shared that staff member with the Treasury. That doesn't reflect a failure to work together with the Treasury. We've got very good relationships with the Treasury, but the truth is, if you are putting the level of resource that we were committing into the last IDA replenishment, I thought it was important that we had a full-time executive director focused on exactly the kind of policy challenges that I was speaking about in relation to the bank. So, as I'm about to say on the second question, I can't uh, account for uh, everybody. I can tell you from a British point of view that we uh, have the scale of ambition for the reform of the World Bank because we have a full cabinet-ranked department and a Secretary of State focused on these issues on a day and daily basis. I'm not convinced that I could offer you that assurance in relation to the principal opposition. Secondly, on the character of the crisis and the origins of the crisis dictating American policy towards the bank, I'm not sure rather than to the extent that the global financial crisis coming as it did at a critical juncture in September just a few weeks before the American presidential election helped power Barack Obama over the winning line. And if you're as sad and interested in American politics as I am, the lines split in terms of polling numbers almost the day of the Lehman Brothers collapse and never came back together. And in that sense, there's no doubt the crisis had a big impact on domestic policy. It took some time for a full-time executive director to be appointed by the Obama administration, partly because of the clearance systems involved in uh, getting new people into office with an incoming administration. But I have been genuinely heartened and encouraged by the cooperation and alignment between British thinking and American thinking on the bank in recent weeks and in recent months. And I had a very positive conversation with the executive director responsible for the bank from the administration at that meeting that I referred to in Istanbul back in October. So I think the principal driver of American policy towards the bank will actually be the character of the administration more than the character of the crisis. And in that sense, this is an administration with a pretty full entry at the moment. But on the other hand, I've been encouraged by the language and the pointers that we've seen so far emanating from the White House and indeed from Treasury and from State in terms of a commitment to multilateralism and the role that institutions like the World Bank could play. If I'm honest with you, I think the Americans are getting a bit of a bum rap at the moment in terms of working collaboratively and internationally. I dealt quite closely with Raj Shaw, the new head of USAID in the days immediately following the Haitian earthquake. And I know that there were some who suggested that the Americans had occupied Haiti and there were others who suggested that they were giving priority to their own planes and everything else. I just tell you that bore no relationship to the working partnership that we established within hours of the crisis. The first conversation I had with Raj involved him saying, listen, how can we help you help? And in that sense, that was the spirit that we witnessed in terms of the emergency response and the rescue phase and the relief phase in Haiti. 
I said to him in a conversation following various conversations that we had that I very much sensed that was the face of America that the rest of the world had been pining to see, a willingness to work collaboratively with the United Nations to bear its shoulder uh, and to put its shoulder to the wheel in bearing its responsibility in the face of international crises. I hope and believe it can be that same spirit that animates its engagement with other multilateral institutions on the way ahead. Um, on your third point in terms of proprietary software rather than open sourcing, um, it has not been an issue that I've spoken directly with the bank presidency or the bank management about. Part of the challenge that I was trying to speak to you about this evening was the need to get the strategy right and then allow the operational decisions to be taken by the management themselves. It does seem to me that um, on a whole range of issues there has been a genuine confusion as to what is the reasonable expectation of governors in terms of their involvement and executive directors in terms of their involvement and what reasonably are matters that can be resolved at a country level. Let me say something else contentious to add to my remarks, however, though. I often think that a lot of the way the bank is characterised is reflective of legacy thinking. And part of the challenge is if you want to see reform in this institution, to be clear about those areas where you think there hasn't been enough progress and progress needs to be made. And I take the point that clearly um, there is continuing concern in relation to proprietary software. But actually, on an issue like economic policy conditionality, I find it at some level dispiriting the disjuncture between the public debate in this country about economic policy conditionality and the reality in terms of the changes that have been made. That's not to say that the conversation is concluded or it's not a legitimate discussion. It is to say I think very real progress has been made on that issue in recent years. And I think the real challenge for those of us committed to ensuring an inclusive and effective and progressive partnership in the bank in the years ahead is to make sure that we are targeting our critique of the bank at the challenges the bank are facing today rather than some of the challenges and legacies of the bank in yesteryears. Thank you very much. Um, I think the Minister has laid out for us some very careful, effective steps to making the World Bank more effective. And I think there's two that I would take away from his, the vision he's laid out for us tonight. The first is really about the bank's management and the underlying message that that reflects something that we all know. It's easiest to manage something if you centralize it and you have lots of policies of control. The bank has become a very centralized organization and it uses a lot of policies on financial, prudential safeguards and so forth to control what goes on. And un unclogging that, unleashing that is difficult. And I, I think it's excellent to see a British government recognizing the challenge of loosening up some of that control so that you can unleash the bank to do what the bank needs to do. And I think that's an excellent um, and effective program for the British government to take forwards. And I think the second element that I would take away from tonight's speech is that it's never been more important to make the bank more genuinely representative, to kind of globalize this global institution to really make developing countries and emerging countries feel that this is their institution as much as it is the institution of the countries that founded it. And so again, it's great to see that there are careful and I think effective steps towards that goal that the minister, I guess on all of our behalf, is gonna be taking forwards over the next two months as the World Bank shareholders together start planning a future for the bank. So thank you, Minister, for taking 
the time to come and lay out that vision to us. It's given us a lot to think about. And thank you all for attending this evening. Could I just, before we finally and um, thank Douglas Alexander, could I ask you just to remain in your seats until the minister has had an opportunity to exit out that door. The organizers have asked me to very strictly, I would never be strict otherwise, to ask you to stay in your seats until, um, until the minister has had an opportunity to exit. But with that, can we thank him very much for his answers and for his speech.